Chapter One of King Arthur and His Knights. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, July two thousand seven. King Arthur and His Knights by Maud L. Radford. Chapter One How Arthur Became King. Once upon a time, a thousand years before Columbus discovered America, and when Rome was still the greatest city in the world, there lived a brave and beautiful youth whose name was Arthur. His home was in England, near London, and he lived with the good knight Sir Hector, whom he always called Father. They dwelt in a great square castle of grey stone, with a round tower at each corner. It was built about a courtyard, and was surrounded by a moat, across which was a drawbridge that could be raised or lowered. When it was raised, the castle was practically a little island, and very hard for enemies to attack. On one side of the moat was a large wood, and here Arthur spent a great deal of his time. He liked to lie under the trees and gaze up at the blue of the sky. All about him old oaks stood like giant guardians watching sturdily over the soil where they had grown for centuries. Arthur could look between the trunks and see rabbits and squirrels whisking about. Sometimes a herd of brown deer with shy, dark eyes would pass, holding their graceful heads high in the air. Sometimes a flock of pheasants with brilliant plumage rose from the bushes. Again there was no sound except the tapping of a bright crested woodpecker, and no motion but the fluttering of leaves and the trembling of violets half buried in green moss. At times, when it was dim and silent in the wood, Arthur would hear bursts of merry laughter, the tinkling of bells and the jingling of spurs. Then he would know that knights and ladies were riding down the road which ran beside the trees. Soon the knights would appear on horses, brown, black, and white, with gaily ornamented saddles, and bridles from which hung silver bells. Often the saddles were made of ivory or ebony, set with rubies or emeralds. The knights wore helmets laced with slender gold chains, and coats of mail made of tiny links of steel, so fine and light that altogether hardly weighed more than a coat of cloth. Usually the legs of the knights were sheathed in steel armor, and their spurs were steel, or even gold. The ladies sat on horses with long trappings of silk, purple, white, or scarlet, with ornamented saddles and swinging bells. The robes of the ladies were very beautiful, being made of velvet or silk trimmed with ermine. Arthur liked to watch them, flashing by, crimson and gold and blue and rose-colored. Better still, he liked to see the pretty, happy faces of the ladies, and hear their gay voices. In those troublous times, however, the roads were so insecure that such companies did not often pass. Sometimes the knights and ladies came to visit Sir Hector. Then Arthur would hurry from the forest to the castle. Sir Hector would stand on the lower drawbridge to greet his guests, and would lead them, with many expressions of pleasure, into the courtyard. Then he would take a huge hammer hanging from a post, and beat with it on a table which stood in a corner of the courtyard. 
Immediately from all parts of the castle the squires and servants would come running to take the horses of the knights and ladies. Sir Hector's wife and daughters would then appear, and with their own hands remove the armor of the knights. They would offer them golden basins of water and towels for washing, and after that put velvet mantles upon their shoulders. Then the guests would be brought to the supper-table. But Arthur did not spend all his time dreaming in the woods or gazing at knights and ladies. For many hours of the day he practiced feats of arms in the courtyard. It was the custom of England to train boys of noble birth to be knights. As soon as they were old enough they were taught to ride. Later on they lived much among the ladies and maidens, learning gentle manners. Under the care of the knights they learned to hunt, to carry a lance properly, and to use the sword, and having gained this skill they were made squires if they had shown themselves to be of good character. Then, day by day, the squires practiced at the quintain. This was an upright post, on the top of which turned a cross-piece, having on one end a broad board, and on the other a bag of sand. The object was to ride up at full gallop, strike the board with a long lance, and get away without being hit by the sand-bag. Besides this, the squires had services to do for the knights, in order that they might learn to be useful in as many ways as possible, and to be always humble. For instance, they took care of the armor of the knights, carried letters and messages for them, accompanied them at joustings and tournaments, being ready with extra weapons or assistance, and in the castle they helped to serve the guests at table. After months of such service they went through a beautiful ceremony, and were made knights. In the country round about, Arthur, of all the squires, was the most famous for his skill in the use of the lance and the sword, for his keenness in the hunt, and for his courtesy to all people. Now at this time there was no ruler in England. The powerful Uther of Wales, who had governed England, was dead, and all the strong lords of the country were struggling to be king in his place. This gave rise to a great deal of quarrelling and bloodshed. There was in the land a wise magician named Merlin. He was so old that his beard was as white as snow, but his eyes were as clear as a little child's. He was very sorry to see all the fighting that was going on, because he feared that it would do serious harm to the kingdom. In those days the great and good men who ruled in the church had power almost equal to that of the monarch. The kings and the great lords listened to their advice, and gave them much land, and money for themselves and for the poor. So Merlin went to the Archbishop of Canterbury, the churchman who in all England was the most beloved, and said, Sir, it is my advice that you send to all the great lords of the realm, and bid them to come to London by Christmas to choose a king. The Archbishop did as Merlin advised, and at Christmas all the great lords came to London. The largest church in the city stood not far from the north bank of the Thames. A churchyard surrounded it, filled with yew-trees, the trunks of which were knotted with age. The powerful lords rode up in their clanking armor to the gate, where they dismounted, and giving their horses into the care of their squires, reverently entered the church. There were so many of them that they quite filled the nave and side-aisles of the building, the good archbishop, from where he stood in the chancel, looked down on them all. Just behind him was the altar, covered with a cloth of crimson and gold, and surmounted by a golden crucifix and ten burning candles. 
In front of him, kneeling under the grey arches which spanned the church, were the greatest men in the kingdom. He looked at their stern, bronzed faces, their heavy beards, their broad shoulders, and their glittering armour, and prayed God to make the best man in the land king. Then began the service. At the close of the first prayer some of the knights looked out of the window, and there in the churchyard they saw a great square stone. In the middle of it was an anvil of steel, a foot high, and fixed therein was a beautiful sword. On the sword was some writing set in with gold, which said, Whosoever pulls this sword out of this stone and anvil is the real king of all England. The knights who read this told the archbishop, but he said, I command you all to keep within the church and still pray to God. No man is to touch the sword until all prayers are said. After the service was over, the lords went into the churchyard. They each pulled at the sword, but none could stir it. The king is not here, said the archbishop, but God will make him known. Meantime, let ten good knights keep watch over this sword. The knights were soon chosen, and then the archbishop said that on a fixed day every man in the kingdom should try to pull the sword out of the anvil. He ordered that on New Year's Day all the people should be brought together for a great tournament to be held on the south bank of the Thames, near London Bridge. After a few days spent in jousting among the knights, each man should make the trial to find out whether or not he was to be king. The brave youth Arthur did not know of the contest that was to be made for the sword. Sir Hector told him that he was to go to a tournament, but he did not tell him the reason for holding the tournament. So Arthur rode to London with Sir Hector, and Sir Kay, who was Sir Hector's oldest son, was with them. Sir Hector and Sir Kay rode soberly in front. They were tall, stalwart men, and rode black horses, their dark figures making shadows on the light snow that had fallen. Arthur, riding behind them, felt exhilarated by the crisp winter air which caused the blood to dance in his veins. Sometimes he stood up in his saddle and flicked with his sword the dead leaves on the oaks. Again he made his horse crush the thin crust of ice that had formed in tiny pools on the road. He was so happy in the thought of the tournament he was to see that he could have sung for joy. The road was not very wide, for few carts passed upon it, but it had been well worn by riders. Sometimes it wound through a bit of thick woods, again it rose up over a gently rolling hill. From the hilltops the riders could see London far in the distance. It looked at first like a grey haze, then, as the three came nearer, the buildings, large and small, grew plain to the sight. The castles and huts, barns and sheds, smithies, shops and mills, stood out in the keen sunlight. A high wall surrounded them, while on one side flowed the River Thames. After they had entered the city, and had passed the churchyard, and had almost reached London Bridge, Sir Kay discovered that he had left his sword at home. "'Will you go back for it?' he asked Arthur. "'That I will,' said Arthur, glad of the chance to ride longer in the delightful air. But when he reached their dwelling he could not get in. The drawbridge was raised, and he could not make the warden hear his calling. Then Arthur was disturbed, and said to himself, I will hasten to the churchyard we passed, and take the beautiful sword which I saw on the stone. It does not seem to belong to anyone, and my brother Kay must have a weapon. So he rode on till he reached the churchyard, dismounted, and tied his horse to a sapling. 
The ten knights who guarded the sword had gone away to see the combats and the tournament. Arthur ran up and pulled lightly but eagerly at the sword. It came at once from the anvil. He hurried to Sir Kay, who was waiting for him on London Bridge. Sir Kay knew that the weapon was the one that had been fixed fast in the stone, but he said nothing to Arthur, and the two soon overtook Sir Hector, who had ridden slowly to the field where the tournament was taking place. Sir Kay immediately told his father what had happened. The good knight at once spoke with great respect to Arthur. Sir, he said, you must be the king of this land. What mean you, sir? asked Arthur. Sir Hector told the wandering youth the reason why he was destined to be king. Then he said, Can you put this sword back in its place and pull it out again? Easily, replied Arthur. The three returned to the great stone, and Arthur put back the sword. Sir Hector tried to take it out, but failed. Now you try, he said to Sir Kay. But Sir Kay, in spite of great efforts, also failed. Then Arthur, at Sir Hector's bidding, tried, and at once pulled forth the sword. At that, Sir Hector and Sir Kay knelt before Arthur. Alas, said Arthur, raising them from the ground, my own dear father and my brother, why do you kneel to me? Nay, my lord Arthur, said Sir Hector, I am not your father. You are of higher blood than I am. Long ago, when you were a little baby, Merlin brought you to me to take care of, telling me that you were to be the king. Then whose son am I? cried Arthur. There are two stories, the one that Merlin tells, and the one that old Blees, the master of Merlin, tells. Merlin brought you to me, saying that you were the son of King Uther, and Ygern his wife. But because the king was dead, and the lords powerful and jealous, he told me to guard you in secrecy, lest your life be taken. I did not know whether the story was true or false then, but you were a helpless child, and Merlin was a wise sage, and so I took you and brought you up as my own. Arthur was so astonished that he did not ask to hear the tale that Blees told. He stood gazing at Sir Hector, who said, And now, my gracious lord, will you be good to me and mine when you are king? I will indeed, replied Arthur, for I am more beholden to you than to any one else in the world, and also to my good lady and foster-mother, your wife, who has reared me as if I were her own child. If it be God's will that I shall sometime be king, ask of me then what you will. Sir, said Sir Hector, I ask that you make my son, Sir Kay, your foster-brother, the steward of all your lands. That shall be done, said Arthur, and more, he shall have that office as long as I live. Then the three went to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and related to him the story of Merlin, and all that had occurred. At his request they told no one else. At the command of the Archbishop on Twelfth Day, which is the sixth of January, all the great lords assembled in the churchyard. Each tried to draw forth the sword, and each failed. Then the untitled people came and tried. Everyone failed, until at last Arthur stepped forward. He hardly more than touched the sword when it came away in his hand. At this many of the great lords were angry. He is but a boy, they said, and not of high blood. They refused to believe the story of his birth, told by Merlin and Sir Hector. And because of all the quarrelling, it was decided to have another trial at Candlemas, which fell in the month of February. Again Arthur was victorious. Then the great lords decreed that there should be another trial at Easter, and again Arthur succeeded. 
Next, they decided to have a final trial at the Feast of Pentecost, which fell in May. Meanwhile, Merlin advised the archbishop to see that Arthur had a bodyguard. So the archbishop selected several knights whom the former king, Uther, had trusted. These were Sir Ulfius and Sir Brastias and Sir Bedivere, Sir Geraint and Sir Hector and Sir Kay were also chosen. These brave men formed a bodyguard for Arthur until the Feast of the Pentecost. At this time Arthur again drew out the sword from the anvil. Then the common people, who had so far let the lords have their will, cried out, We will have Arthur for our king, and we will have no more delay, for we see that it is God's will that he should be our ruler. Then all the people knelt down, high and low, rich and poor, and begged Arthur's pardon for the delay he had undergone. Arthur forgave them, and taking his sword, reverently placed it on the great altar beside which the archbishop stood. This was a sign that he meant to dedicate himself and his sword to God. Afterward the crowning was held, and all the brave men and fair ladies in the land were present. The lords wore beautiful robes of velvet and ermine, with gold and jewels on their breastplates. The ladies' robes were of purple and white and scarlet and gold and blue, and they wore many pearls and rubies and diamonds, so that all the place where they were assembled was glowing with light and color. But Arthur, who wore a plain white robe, did not think of the beauty and richness. He was very grave, knowing that he was about to take a solemn oath. He bowed his head while the archbishop set upon it the golden crown, which gleamed with jewels. Then he stood up before his people, and vowed that he would be a good king and always do justice. All the people uncovered their heads, and vowed to serve and obey him. And when he smiled kindly on them, as he rode slowly through the throng, they threw up their caps and shouted joyfully, Long live King Arthur! Long live the king! King Arthur chose worthy men for his officers, making Sir Kay steward as he had promised, Sir Ulfius he made chamberlain, and Sir Brastias warden. Arthur gave offices also to Sir Hector and Sir Bedivere and Sir Geraint. After his crowning the king set about righting all the wrongs that had been done since the death of King Uther. He gave back the lands and money that had been taken from widows and orphans, and would permit no unkindness to any of his subjects. Thus, at the very beginning of his reign, his people began to call him Good King Arthur. End of chapter 1